Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Taryn Hyatt. Taryn is a survivor of suicide loss and the Utah Area Director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. This episode definitely hit close to home for me, uh, with Taryn also having lost her father to suicide and with her being in long-term recovery from alcohol and other substances. On this episode, Taryn and I talk about her uniquely challenging experience having found her father after his suicide 20 years ago. We talk about how alcohol and substances provided her an escape from the grief around the loss of her dad. And then in general, we talk about this connection that exists between addiction and mental and emotional disorders, including depression and suicidal intensity. We get into how her involvement with AFSP began and how it evolved into what it is today. And finally, uh, Taryn bravely shares about her own experience surviving multiple suicide attempts. It meant a lot to have Taryn on this episode and for her to share as bravely and openly as she did. And I hope you get as much out of it as I do. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com slash W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Taryn, good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. I was introduced to Taryn by Betsy Rhodes, who we had on episode three of the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today, Taryn. I think there's a lot of interesting perspective you could bring to the table. I know we're going to talk probably at length about your experience with AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and your involvement with and uh, in getting started the Utah chapter. So I know we'll talk about that. Um, before we get too deep down in the weeds, there's a question that I like to start with and can certainly relate to you in terms of the, the nature of your loss, both of us having lost our fathers to suicide. Um, and, and first and foremost, wanna extend my condolences uh, to you on that. I'm, I'm wondering when it comes to your dad, what, what would you say is the most important or some of the most important things that you learned either from him or from losing him to suicide? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And and my heart is with you as well. Um, you know, my dad and I had quite the the life together in relationship. You know, I was 26 years old when I lost him. And so as I'm nearing the age, I'm getting closer to the age he was when he died. It's it's really an interesting time to think back on, on the life that I got to have. But I've also lived a lot of life without him. So I did learn a lot from him in life, but I've also learned a lot from him in death. And if I were to say the most important thing that I've learned, um, it, it honestly is my own recovery from substances and living in, in sobriety today. Um, that is something my father could not find while he was alive. And and I traveled a, a really dark path too. And, and that is, you know, I'm here today. I get to see my children. I get to experience my grandchildren. And, and my father doesn't get to have those, you know, suicide robbed him of those experiences. And so that's the most powerful thing is I live a life today free from the, the addictions and the darkness, but also work every single day, as you well know, to, to stay on that path. Absolutely. Wow. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And every time I have one of these conversations, it's amazing to see the similarities and the parallels. I was also uh, 26 when I lost my dad. Wow. Uh, my dad was um, an alcoholic. He struggled with substances for at least my whole life and uh, before that as well. Um, I found my way into sobriety after losing my dad and was at a point in my life where I was really struggling already at the time that we lost him. I think that was all the uh, fuel to the fire I needed to kind of get catapulted on, on my way down a pretty dark path. Um, so I know that's something we're going to focus on as well today. I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about substance abuse disorder and mental disorders such as depression and suicidal intensity. I, I really want to spend some time pulling on that today. But first, want to want to dive a little bit deeper into talking about your dad, if that's something that feels comfortable to you. Absolutely. I'm wondering if if you could walk us through, I, I believe it's been about two decades mm -hmm. since you lost your dad. I'm wondering if we could rewind and if if you could take us through what it was like finding out that your dad had completed suicide and what the immediate aftermath was like for you and finding out that news. Yeah. So my experience was really unique in that I was the one who found him. Mm. And so there's a, a really special story there, though. Um, you know, my dad is a, was a successful businessman here in our local town. You know, he, we, we lived a good life. You know, I, I had I never wanted or needed for anything. Um, I, I knew as a young child, my dad suffered from depression because we were always told when to avoid him, right? We would see him in moments of quietness, sadness, and my mom was really good at kind of, you know, leave your dad alone, let him just kind of be right now. And so I knew there was something, of course, as a young child, I didn't understand exactly what. And as his life would progress, you know, something that, that we learned, of course, after and, and what I didn't understand was how closely linked our mental, mental and physical health are. Um, because of his mental health conditions that for most of his life went untreated, he developed some really serious health consequences, um, really serious acid reflux and anxiety, right, um, to where he had multiple surgeries and the surgeries ended up with uh, an opioid addiction. 
And my father too was an alcoholic um, until he married my mother. I live in Utah. So my family was LDS, which is Mormon, what most people know. And so you do not drink alcohol in the Mormon religion. And so my dad traded one alcohol for another, and that became prescription medication. And, and I really watched my dad battle that insidiousness for his whole life. Again, 22 surgeries throughout the course of his life. You know, we didn't know what we know today about opioids. So he was given unlimited access, you know, multiple refills. And then he also dealt with some, like I mentioned, pretty severe anxiety, which, which he was prescribed benzodiazepines. Um, Ativan was one that really took him out. Um, he got to a point where he was taking upwards of 30 a day. Wow. And that's something to think about. And then in the, the you know, over the course of his life, he, he divorced my mother, um, my mom and he divorced. Um, my mom had a really hard time living with somebody who had the diseases he did. Um, he, he really went through a lot and, and the divorce devastated my dad. That is definitely a moment I know he, he did not get over. Um, he didn't see it coming even though uh, we kind of did, yeah. you know, and so I, I watched him really not recover from that. He had multiple failed marriages, went from a, being a really successful businessman to living in a tiny two bedroom apartment, uh, work in the graveyard shift at Seven Eleven, 11 because of some of the life choices he had made, you know, he, he committed insurance fraud. That's why he lost his insurance agency and, and did time in jail and I'll never forget, my dad always said, you know, I, I will never come back here. When he got out, I will never come back here. Um, he'd had what we know now, uh, seven DUI accidents, but they never involved alcohol. He was always high on prescription medication. And uh, the last several were were due to Ambien. And I don't think enough people know the risks that come with taking that, that sleeping medication. And so Ambien became the one that really those last few days and weeks, um, he'd been taking it for about two years, but again, his tolerance had built up. He was taking 30 a day uh, the last three and a half weeks before he died. Um, we have receipts. He filled and took a prescription of 30 Ambien a day in addition to all of his other meds and, and he was not sleeping. Um, he was, he was awake. So he had gone about 10 days without sleep. And the night that he Gosh. ended his, the night that he ended his life, he, he called me. Um, what we know from the medical examiner's report is, is he called me probably right after he, he ingested the, the things that he did to end his life. And I didn't answer because I knew we'd have the, the ambient conversation, which means he would think something had happened. I'd have to talk him off of, you know, nobody robbed you. You just got up again, you know, made toast. There's different things he would do. And anyway, um, that next morning as I made my way to work, I just had that gnawing feeling that he wasn't, I needed to go check on him. And my dad was funny. He used to always say as a teen, um, I'm like Tom Baudette. I'll leave the light on for you. It's a Motel 6 commercial. <laughs> and uh, as I made my way to his home that, that next morning to check on him, uh, I pulled up. The light was on. And for that brief moment, my heart went, oh, he's okay. You're being silly. And as I knocked on his door, he didn't answer. So I opened it and I could hear the TV. So I called out, you know, dad. And and I, I had a really profound experience. Um, I heard a very clear, distinct voice in my head that said, Taryn, you're going to take five steps and walk down those. And then you're going to turn to the right. And when you turn to the right, you're going to see your dad. He's gone, but he needs you. And I remember just going, wait, what? And I still have chills thinking about that. And I looked and there were five steps. So I went one, two, three, four, five, and I turned and there he was. And 
you know, that's one of those moments that, again, I will cherish forever. I am so grateful it was his daughter. It wasn't a stranger. It was me. And the reason I say that is because he had found me like that so many times as a teenager. But I lived. And so, you know, I, I ran to him. I held him. I begged him to come to life. Of course, he didn't. And and I made the phone call to 911 and, and waited for, for police to get there. And, you know, when the, the law enforcement officer greeted me at the door, he said, you know, it's Terry, isn't it? You know, they knew him. They'd been to his house the night before because he'd been in yet another DUI accident. And I think that was for him kind of the final, you know, moment of, oh, no, what have I done again? And and so, yeah, it, it was a bittersweet uh, moment. And and when I, I like I say, I will I will cherish. I will cherish. I found him at 1010. 1010 is my magic number now. 1010 on a Saturday morning in October. Wow. I know that's a lot. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's powerful. And the, the way you speak about it uh, just really hits home for what that must, must have been like for you. And what, what it brings up for me is, you know, I think something you and I know pretty well uh, being in the world of recovery from substances mm-hmm. is the impact that resentment can have on us. Um, it's something I've done a lot of work around. I'm sure you have as well. And in hearing you talk about being the one who found your dad and hearing about how the medical world failed your father, I'm wondering about any potential resentments that showed up around that. Did you feel it toward, damn it, dad, like you did that to me and I had to be the one to find you. And is there any lingering resentment against the way Western medicine just throws prescriptions at people to try to help them navigate challenges they're having? Oh, a hundred percent. First and foremost, I was never angry at my father. I can tell you that even today, I miss Hmm. him. I miss him, but I'm not mad because I understand how could he have made any other decision than the one he made in that moment of just total hopeless, helpless, dark night of the soul, having not slept for 10 days. I'm a recovering addict. I used to do methamphetamine. I know where my brain went when I didn't sleep. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I I, I get it. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Again, I'm grateful we had that connection because I understood. I also, having attempted, I knew that he didn't do it to us. Yeah. He really thought this was the best thing because I know he... He was so tired of disappointing us and hurting us that he thought they're going to just be better off. I know he believed that. I hate that he believed that, but I know that he believed that. As far as resentment at the medical community, thousand percent. Um, ironically, the doctor who had been prescribing my dad the the plethora of medications he was getting uh, the night before when I was out, I was out with his son, unbeknownst to me at the time, who made the comment, we could go to my dad's office and get oxys if we wanted. And I remember like, of course, then, I mean, I was using and then come to find out the same doctor who'd been prescribing them to my dad, Oxycontin with a refill back then, with a refill. (laughs) You can't do that today. But that's because we did. We filed a a lawsuit. We we claimed, you know, filed a, a complaint. Um, the lawsuit didn't end up going anywhere, but it did end up changing the laws in our state where Doppel is now required to do a more extensive search, you know, that doc, and this had always been in place, right? Doctors are supposed to 
supposed to, right, when they prescribe medications to check if they're being prescribed other meds. My dad was a great doctor shopper. He had multiple doctors <laughs> prescribing him the same things. He would pay in cash. So pharmacies wouldn't track it because they said, well, he pays cash. We're not billing his insurance. Well, you're also giving him a medication that he got yesterday at your same pharmacy down the street, right? So how are those things not being linked? So there definitely were a lot of system failures. Um, but for me, and, and this was even before, you know, I got into recovery, I knew that I'm a doer. It didn't do me any good to be pissed off. I was like, what are we going to do about it? And so I took them on, <laughs> you know, what are we going to do? And so we got some laws changed here. And, and so that won't happen to other families and that people won't have to have that experience. I'm pretty sure I pissed off some people that can't get their meds like they used to, but that's okay. <laughs> and maybe some other people who can't make money the way they used to. Yep. Yeah, if, I, I don't know if you've seen some of the documentaries that are out there. I know there's there's one called Dope Sick. Mm -hmm. That one gutted me. Oh, I can't I can't imagine it gutted me. And I, I don't have anywhere near the direct personal experience that you've had. But I think that speaks uh, pretty closely to some of the system failures that were there just even a decade ago. Um, and. I think the good news or the silver lining there is how things have continued to shift in a positive direction. And we're not seeing uh, doctors write prescriptions the way that they were 20, 10 years ago. Um, but obviously still a lot of room to grow in terms mm -hmm. of making this something that's safer uh, for, for those who, who need help from the medical community. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I also had... I had scoliosis as a kid, and I believe it was a manifestation of some of the, the trauma that had happened to me, but it meant that I had to have surgery. And so I was introduced to morphine at age 12. I mean, this is where my own journey began, right? But it was interesting in my adult years, right? I, I would not take the medications because I was not going to be a pill addict like my dad, right? That's how I would justify the amount of weed I smoked, the amount of Jaeger I drank, and the amount of cocaine <laughs> yeah. that I snorted, right? Yeah. That, that, somehow that was better than taking, you know, the oxys that he was taking. And, and I'd sell my prescription. I mean, that's what I would do. I would sell my prescription to get other things. Oh yeah. Um, it's just unreal to me, you know, the way that, that, that went down, but yeah, dope sick opened our eyes to that, that, you know, Purdue pharma and the, the opioid epidemic and where it began. Right. And, and we know a lot of people who Oxycontin and, you know, again, opioids in general, start a lot of people down that path of substance use. It's, it's tragic. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I tend to operate under the belief that there really isn't such a thing as evil in this world. It's hard to watch that documentary and look at it as anything but evil and with malice. You know, I, I just had surgery two weeks ago, fairly minor surgery in the grand scheme of things. Both of my sinuses um, had to get repaired. My doctor wrote me a prescription for Oxy. And this was with me telling him that I'm an addict in recovery. Um, he said, trust me, you're going to want to have this. So if you have a safe place, you can keep it. I'd recommend doing that. And he gave me 30 oxys for a pretty minor prescription. And this is in 2023 <laughs> with everything we know uh, for a recovering addict. I took, I took them for the first day and a half and then realized I need to get these things out of my house. And that's, that's what I did, but scary that that still yes. happens. <laughs> 
I, I appreciate that. I've been having some neck issues. So I went in for a procedure a couple of weeks ago and I actually had a hip replacement last year. No openings whatsoever. And wow. oh my gosh, I probably would rethink that when they do my next one because it was pretty intense, but I was super worried, right? But anyway, when I was getting my neck done the other day, they did this radio frequency ablation. I remember the gal when she came in, you know, she says, we're going to sedate you. Great. You know, she goes, so I have, you know, propofol and fentanyl. And I was like, whoa, fentanyl. <laughs> that that yeah. was quick. I said, I don't want the fentanyl. I'm good. <laughs> but you're right. You know, it, it's interesting how that's just still a go-to. And I think I have this belief, okay, it's just me, you know, that again, in our society, we are so much about avoiding pain. Oh, yeah. I like to be, you know, uncomfortable. And yet sometimes, as you well know, we got to be uncomfortable if we want to move through things and grow. And and so, you know, to each their own and, and do what you need to do to manage. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I, I very firmly <laughs> stick to that whenever they're like, are you allergic to any meds? I'm like, yep, opioids, don't even give them to me. <laughs> that's, that's a smart way to approach it. That's really smart what you said about pain and discomfort. And I feel like in that way, I used to treat my body kind of like a science project. I knew what exact combination of chemicals would get me the output I was looking for. It, <clears throat> excuse me. And most of the time, the output was to not feel discomfort. And even now in recovery, I can be quite crafty for <laughs> the ways that I can find to try to dodge pain when it shows up in my life. Absolutely. I can attest to that too. And you know, that's been the greatest gift I've learned. I'm I'm coming up on 10 years. And again, as you know, it doesn't matter the time, it's what we're doing today. And and it's really been this last, you know, maybe year and a half that I kind of rededicated myself to my recovery, especially knowing I had to have surgery. You know, I didn't want to be in a space where I thought, oh, you know, I'm putting that at risk. But you know, I'm grateful. I remember you've probably heard all the cliches we hear, but you know, the good news is you're going to get your feelings back, right? The bad news. Yeah. Is yeah. Back. yeah. And, you know, so to feel our way through life, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have that, the tools to do that today. I didn't have those as a teenager, right? I didn't have those. So I'm glad to have those today. Same, same here. And right before this, I was meeting with a friend from my recovery community. And one of the cliches that came up, one that I know, you know, is about rock bottom, which mm -hmm. is something that we all have our own experience with finding our way into recovery and something that really resonated with me. You know, my first six months in recovery was hearing that rock bottom is what happens when we stop digging. Yeah. I don't, I don't have to lose it all to be at this place where I'm ready to try to influence change in my life. And I'm wondering if it feels comfortable for you if you could kind of kind of take us through that, what your experience was like, um, it sounds like an extensive career in utilizing substances. And I'm wondering what it looked like being able to turn the corner on that and find your way into recovery. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I'm just going off the rock bottom thing, you know, something that I've loved that's been evolving and changing as we talk about mental health, right, and, and mental health conditions and substance use is, you know, we shouldn't have to wait for people to get there, right? We have so much knowledge today that, again, if we can start trying to bring people's bottom, you know, not so low, I love what you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, that that bottom, you know, barrel, and I've lost everything it doesn't have to be that, you know, and thankfully, 
some of us have less pain tolerance than others. And I'm glad for that. I, I know my pain tolerance is not what it used to be. And, and for that, I'm grateful, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my sobriety date is June 23rd, 2013, a day that, you know, again, is forever ingrained in my mind. Um, my middle name is Renee, which is French for reborn. Mm. And that's when I was reborn. Um, it, it came after, a, again, a gut-wrenching, ugly night, unfortunately. Um, I am definitely a, an alcoholic. Uh, one drink is never enough, and there can never be, you know, too many. I, I Once I start, I don't stop. And, and I've gone out, as I have multiple times. I was a single mother, and so I always had every other weekend off. And that fed my disease, because I could just go do what I wanted with no accountability and then come home on Sunday night when my kids got back and put my game face back on, and here we go again. And... Uh, I'd gone out and, and, and drank, and, and this was shortly before I was going to surrender to an outpatient treatment program again, um, because my, uh, my son had been arrested in February of that year. Our house had been raided. He was selling marijuana, <laughs> and I smoked it with him. I was that mom that thought, well, at least he's doing it with me, and uh so I had charges uh, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, all these things. I had to watch my son be handcuffed and taken out of my home as a 17-year-old wow. kid begging me, please, mommy, don't let them take me. Mm. And even on that night when they took him, the first thing I did was look for anything they missed because I couldn't stand the feeling, right, that I had of, oh, my God, how has this become my life? And of course, that's not my sobriety date, right? It took me five more months because, you know, I waited until I had to surrender and turn myself in. I was going to go have one more drunk. And unfortunately, I, I did what I always do. I, I disappear. Um, my sister put out a Facebook APB. It's always so gross. Every time that used to come up on my memories, has anyone seen Karen? And then the worst part is people responding. And I'm like, I don't even remember being there. you know. And that's gross. But, you know, the next day when I came to, uh, I looked over at who I had done, <laughs> what I had done. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the first thing I did was drink again. And then came to a few hours later to my uh, phone, having about 26 missed calls from my child, uh, my child being Colin. And the last one just said, um, I hope you're dead because I can't do this anymore. I can't wonder where you are. And if you're coming home, I just can't do it anymore, mom. And uh, that was it. That was like the, oh my gosh. So I, I drove home, <laughs> terrible, dog skated, and then walked <clears throat> to my local AA meeting because you don't show up to an AA meeting in your car drunk, especially this one, because there was always cops that came and ate lunch there. <laughs> so, so terrible. Um, but that was the that was the last day that any kind of mind altering substance or or alcohol has been in my body. And for that, you know, I'm I'm truly grateful. And I have a beautiful relationship with that child today. I just became a grandma to his twin little babies. In fact, last night I was up till two in the morning because I got to go babysit <laughs> and, wow. and be there and, and be a part of his life. And again, I'm I'm grateful for that grace that he's given me and the the willingness he's given me to to make it right. To make mm -hmm. it right. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. And really, really proud for the corner that you've turned and how you've made it a, a staple in your life. 
And in relating it to the loss of your dad, it sounds like you at this point have kind of two chapters since losing your dad, the the 10 years leading up to getting sober and the 10 years since. I'm curious about those 10 years leading up to it. Um, Because I know for for myself, as, as I mentioned before, losing my dad was the catalyst for my addiction progressing to a point that scared me. It scared the crap out of me, to be honest. And I don't know how long it would have taken me to get there if I didn't lose my dad to suicide. But I I do know that (laughs) in some ways, I think it saved my life Mm -hmm. because I don't think I was ready to face the reality of losing my dad to suicide and drugs and alcohol were still working for me in terms of helping me escape from that pain. And if I had to face that pain head on immediately after losing my dad, I I don't know what version of me would have met it. So obviously there are a million better ways to handle grief than uh, pushing it down with drugs and alcohol. Uh, For me in that moment, that's all I knew how to do. And I'm curious what your experience was like in already being in a place when you lost your dad, that it sounds like substances were in the picture. Is that something that progressed for you? And was it also a tool to deal with grief? Oh, 100%. In fact, uh, the first thing I did after I left my dad's house, my girlfriend who lived just down the street came and picked me up and we went and got high because I didn't know what else to do. I went home and got in my tub and I stayed in that tub for probably two and a half hours. I was just in shock. My little brother came over and and got me out because I just was in there just freezing, right, and shaking. I I didn't know what was happening. And he and I actually, this is such an interesting story, but uh, we had tickets that night to go see Incubus. Mm. And uh, we went. And it was the most beautiful experience because I just sat there like tears running down my face the whole time. I love Brandon Boyd, first and foremost. But my little brother, I watched him get lost in the music. And I think that was a great coping strategy for him. And then I remember even reading some of the words to to miss you at my dad's funeral, right? I know I'll see you again, whether far or soon, but I need you to know that I care and I miss you, right? That's just what it kept resonating to me. And and then a couple of years later, you know, I, I went and saw him again and got to go backstage and I met Brandon Boyd. And of course I tell him that story and he's probably thinking, Oh my gosh, there's this crazy lady telling me she came here. She came here the night her dad killed himself. And, you know, but it was like, wow, thank you for sharing that with me. But, you know, for me, music was a, a huge part of my healing too. It always has been music takes me to a moment in time where I know, but yeah, my, my use went downhill real quick. Um, I at the time was dating this guy and um, he was very abusive um, unless we, unless we did Coke, you know, when he drank, he got verbally and physically violent. And so we had started using all sorts of things. Um, I'm not proud of, of what I allowed. Um, you know, my son Colin again, had to witness this man try to kill me on my front lawn. Mm-hmm. And the next day in my car, crying his little eyes out saying, mommy, if I ever see him again, I'll kill him. And I'm going, oh my gosh, Terry, and what are you doing? Um, took me a long time, you know, it took me a long time. And at the same time, as I know you can appreciate, it's not like I was just this horrid person, you know, in the same time, in that first 10 years, 
I found AFSP online. I started the walk. I started a chapter. Like I, I still, I was a good person. I had lots of good stuff. I drank over it, but I did lots of good stuff, you know, and, and, you know, cause we hear it too. We weren't bad people trying to get good. We were sick people trying to get well. And AFSP for me was a huge part of getting me to a space where I was willing to get help, to get healthy, um, to look at again, my drinking and, and what that had become. And so, you know, the two really kind of went hand in hand. And then to look at the next 10 is just, right, life really opened up. And and the life I have today is more beautiful than I could ever imagine. And and I'm again, I'm grateful for all of those experiences because they've gotten me here. You know, they've gotten me here. And having kids, my brain still goes dark. <laughs> I still have moments. But I know I won't act on those thoughts because of my dad. I know everything to do, right? I know who to talk to. I know what to say. I know how to go and see a therapist and get back on meds if I need to. I still see the same therapist I've seen since I was 12 years old and I'm 46, you know. Um, I, I know what to do today to, to be able to live through the, the hard things. So, yeah, it, it was definitely, I, I went to the depths of hell for sure. Last thing I'll say is, you know, I had an experience right before I got sober and I don't know about you, but, you know, my dad's been gone 20 years and I can probably count on one hand how many times I've dreamt of him. And it's sad to me because that's maybe five. But I cherish those dreams because when he comes in those dreams, they're very vivid and, and really important in the time of my life that I've had him. And I remember being right before this, this period of finally getting sober and I was on a street corner and traffic, right, was rushing past me and all of a sudden I look across and I see my dad and I'm like, dad, dad, right? Waving and, and waving. And then I see the look on his face and the look on his face broke me because it was like this look of what are you doing? And then a bus came between us and he was gone. And, and I, and that for me was his like, okay, come on, <laughs> come on. And so, you know, in the last 10 years, every time I pick up a, a year chip, I, I, take it to his grave. I get one for me. I get one for him. And, and he is a huge motivator in, in why I'm sober today. Yeah. I relate to that a hundred percent. My dad had dipped his toes into recovery uh, in the nine months leading up to his death. And as far as I know, he'd stayed sober for about six of those months and was in AA and was also more depressed than I'd ever seen him. The only time I saw the light come on is when he would come home from an AA meeting. He would be so jazzed up to like, tell me what he learned and how he helped put the chairs away. And he met this cute old man. And like, it was just so cool to see the impact that it was having on him. And without that experience, I wouldn't have known where to go, but Sure enough, my, my dad died on a Wednesday and the following Wednesday, a week later, was the weekly meeting he would go to in our hometown. And you better believe I found my way there and I was not ready to get sober, but I did know that there was a place for me and I got to meet people who knew him through that meeting. And that for me was planting the seed for what later became the the foundation for my recovery when I was ready. You you talk about dreams and I, I got chills when you talked about that. Um, I've been very lucky to, well, 
with a caveat to have dreamt about my dad a lot, they're usually not good. They're usually not good. It's usually uh, him falling and me trying to catch him is the dream. I've had a recurring dream, him like falling down a flight of stairs and me reaching out, trying to catch him. And I can never quite catch him. And right as he's about to hit the ground, I wake up. And that feels like a, you know, a very obvious low hanging metaphor. Um, one dream stands out in particular. I had a dream in my real quick in my dreams. I never hear my dad. I see him. It looks just like him. It's the same, same stature. My dad was a tall man. He was a big man, but I never hear him. There was one dream where I was at what felt like a treatment center, mm-hmm. like a, a, a rehab center or something. Mm-hmm. We were putting together a film to show everyone that was at the center. And the film that we were putting together was about my dad's life. Mm -hmm. And I went outside and sat at a picnic table and my dad came walking up and he sat right next to me. And I told him like, dad, you got to come see this. We're making a movie about you. And as plain as day in his voice, he says, why would you do that? Like, what, what would people have to say about me? And I was like, you got to come check this out. And we went inside and watched the film. And it was literally just like a slideshow of his life and my life with him. And it was just so powerful. It was like my way of telling him how much I still see him, the person and not him, the man who took his life, you know, at the risk of belaboring it. And I know it can be boring when people talk about their dreams, but you know, this was just so impactful to me that like he was asking in a way that I think he really didn't know, like what impact have I had? And it was really neat to be able to sit there and see it in real time. Like this is the impact you've had. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure you've seen it, right? There's a meme that goes around and gosh, I appreciate it. It says, you know, why do we wait till people's funerals to tell them all the wonderful things that they did and the things that they did that meant to us and the memories that we had, like we should do those on their birthday. And I thought, Oh, isn't that true? Right. Isn't that true? Why do we wait? And, and there's a song I love. I don't know what your music taste is, but I was always a dear fan of, of Lincoln park and Chester wrote a song called, you know, leave out all the rest. And I love that when my time comes, right. Remember the good. And and that's how I look at my dad. He's not defined by how he left this earth. Besides we know suicide's a health issue. So we're not even going there. (laughs) It's not, he died from depression, untreated depression and untreated addiction. That happens all the time. And yet, um, yeah, for so many of us, we still have to battle that stigma of, of, you know, what people think of our loved one because of how they died. So, no, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you for holding space for it. I want to go back to something you touched on, which is like, it, it is hard and painful to take a look back. I know for me on my, my time with substances and realize all the collateral damage that went on around me, the people that I hurt, the people that I let down, the people that I cut off, the people that are no longer in my life for good reason on their part. Um, And I, I think there are a couple different ways to look at addiction itself. And I think there's a lot of talk about the disease model of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, addiction being this disease, a fatal illness. I know, especially in 12-step recovery, that's kind of the way we're taught to look at it. Yeah. I, I don't know that I fully disagree or that that doesn't resonate with me. For, for myself, I look at my 
dependence on substances and my addictive tendencies to be a symptom Mm -hmm. of an underlying hurt. Yeah. That's the way it's played out in my life. I'm not saying that's the way it is for everybody. Um, but I don't look at addiction as the problem. I look at addiction as the problem leaking out. (laughs) And, um, and I'm curious if, if that resonates at all for you, I'm wondering if you could kind of take us through any early experiences you had in life, either with loss or with pain or with grief that may have contributed to finding your way to substances later in life. Oh yeah. I mean, I, that's a hundred percent what it is. I think for me, I think trauma is the root of it all. Um, That's the root of mental illness. That's the root of substance, right? Because again, something happens that for whatever reason, we don't have the capacity to, to handle, to move through the tools, whatever, right? In that moment. And, and then people turn to things, right? Or we try to find our way or we experience some of these symptoms of other illnesses that, that compounded. And um, I was a, a eight-year-old little Mormon kid um, who had just gotten baptized. And in my religion, that means that you have been washed clean of all your sins and now you're accountable. Now God's watching. And that was confusing as hell um, to me as a kid. And at the same time, I had started being sexually abused by a neighbor mm. and not just any neighbor, a friend of our family. And and it was a female. It was a girl that that would come and babysit us, you know, and and of course, I didn't say anything. I allowed it to happen. Um, my body experienced orgasm. I was eight. I didn't know that that was what it was. Because again, we don't talk about sex in our house either, right? We don't, we don't talk about any of that stuff. And so I was very confused. And um, I didn't know whether I was gay. That was a serious thought I had as an eight-year-old kid. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I thought I must be evil because certainly I shouldn't be feeling the way I'm feeling. And I know this isn't supposed to be happening. And then if God's watching me, well, fuck, I'm screwed, you know? And uh, that's where I literally, that's where my separation from any kind of, of higher power, God, religion, I just was like, no, I'm done. And, and I just turned inward and wanted to no longer be on this earth. I, again, it wasn't that I wanted to be dead. I did not know how to live with what had happened, and I didn't know who to tell. Um, I told you I developed scoliosis. I believe that's why, because I literally, my voice just, I stopped talking. Um, by the time I'm 11, I'm I'm attempting suicide regularly, you know, and, and I, I thankfully was young enough. I didn't have access to things. And according to a therapist who literally said this to me, I just didn't do it right. <laughs> I was like, that's actually a good thing, dude, that I didn't do it right. But thank you. Uh, um, you know, so I ended up hospitalized by age 12 for my first, you know, pretty serious attempt and um, and was in an institution. And, and then, you know, in that institution, I met all these other kids who'd been through the same things as me. That's where I first told the dirty secret because finally I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. But then I also met kids who I saw were using drugs and alcohol to cope. And I was like, well, maybe that's what I do. So when I got out, I, you know, I had a dad who had a pharmacy and I would just open up his little closet doors and there was all this stuff. And um, I tell people it's gross, but, you know, I drank Robitussin every single day from the time I was 12 till I was about 18 because I could get it, Um, you know, medications through him, alcohol when we could get it, weed when we could get it, shrooms, LSD. I was that kid that anything I could get my hands on, I took. I didn't care. 
Um, Cause I didn't care whether I lived or died. You know, I just did not know what to do, how to cope. And, and that led me to some really ugly places. You know, I was raped at 15. I was raped again at 23. I was raped again at 31. You know, I put myself in situations that people did not have my best interests at heart because of my decisions. And, you know, again, it was not my fault. I did not ask for any of those things. That is on those people for what they did. But I certainly could start being more accountable to, to what I was doing. Because guess what? Since I got sober, I ain't got raped yet. <laughs> I know that sounds callous, but you know what I believe? I, I don't put myself in the places I used to. It's a miracle I only got raped three times. And, and that's the God's honest truth, because I would drink to the point of blackout and be in situations where people could have kidnapped me, trafficked me, murdered me, and nobody would have known. And I, I'm, again, by the grace of whatever is God, go I, that I'm still here today. So yeah, it was a it was a really early start for me, but that was how I coped. You know, that was how I coped. I had severe depression and anxiety. I just didn't know that that's what it was, and this is what made me feel different, not better, different, different enough that I could cope and manage. And it wasn't until I got sober that I finally started addressing um, my depression and anxiety. I was on meds for a brief, brief period, and when I first got sober, got off them, did really well. And then during 2020, I hit a place where I, I knew I went to my doctor's office and said, I'm either going to drink or kill myself. So we got to do something. I've tried everything I know. So I did get back on an antidepressant and I've done really well. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see if I stay on or if I try to go back off because I'm weird. I still do that thing to myself where I'm like, I don't want to have to be on something to make me feel, you know, be able to function. But yeah. Right now, that's that's where I'm at, and I'm just allowing that to be what it is right now, so that I can get through the days and do what I need to do. Isn't it funny? I, I related where you shared about, you know, not wanting to take something because you didn't want to be like your father. When I was a kid, I wouldn't take Tylenol. I was, mm -hmm. I don't think I took it until I was 20 years old. You know, I'd be in an immense amount of pain and like, I'm not taking something. And then fast forward 10 years and I'm like, okay, stranger in the bathroom at the bar. Like, yeah, let me get some of that. <laughs> like, it's funny how, it, funny how it flops. Um, I, I do want to express my gratitude for you, uh, you and your bravery and sharing your experience with sexual abuse and with rape. I think that's part of the ability we have to take the power back. Yeah. Um, this is something we got into on the episode last week with Gary Rowe. Um, you know, being a survivor of sexual abuse and how that has come out sideways at different points in our lives. Um, I do, I do want to dig a little bit deeper into that. And I, I appreciate how open you are about your experience with survived attempts. And mm -hmm. I kind of, I kind of have a two part question for you here. One is for my own edification. Yeah. As you had someone say to you, I think you said it was a therapist that said you didn't do it right. Psychiatrist in the psych hospital. Go him. That's well, that crazy. Wouldn't have, that wouldn't have killed you. You didn't even do it right. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's an insane thing to say to a child who has survived a suicide attempt. And I think it's probably a symptom of uh, a lack of language that we have even still around suicide, like even in myself. So part one of the question is, how do we refer to a survived suicide attempt? Because it is not a failed attempt or an unsuccessful attempt, because then that would, uh, you know, be stating that suicide is successful. So that's yeah. obviously not what we're trying to convey. So part one, what is the language around a survived attempt? 
I'm wondering if you could take us through some of those survived attempts, the feelings that you had on the other side of them, of realizing that you had survived. I'm really curious about what that emotional experience was like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thank you. Um, so the term that we've really moved towards is is lived experience. Um, I, I know most folks, I still refer to myself as an attempt survivor. Um, we hear that kind of get confused in our space because we know we have lost survivors. So when we use the term survivor relating to suicide, we often have to clarify, are you talking about surviving the loss of somebody or have you survived attempting yourself? And so lived experience is a word that folks have been using, you know, as of know, a couple of years ago. Um, and and I appreciate that. And I, I am big on language, you know, because, yeah, this is a health issue. So let's just talk about it like a health issue. We would never say, you know, we committed cancer or we you know, successful at a heart attack. You know, no, these are things we live with experience, you know, endure, go through. So I just think, you know, anything that's appropriate for a health issue is how we would describe these things. And then as far as how I, I felt, you know, uh, honestly, as a teen, I would usually be really pissed off <laughs> when I woke up, like, damn it, I got to do this again. Mm -hmm. And uh, But then as the years would go on, it got to a place of gratitude, of gratitude and being grateful. Um you know, and and while most of my really severe attempts happened in my my youth, you know, they're definitely not the last times I thought of or had really severe ideation. Again, thankfully, I know what to do with that today. Um, and quite honestly, I've only had one real serious kind of dark place, which I referred to um, in my my recovery. So since I've been sober, again, that's really helped my brain. And it does make sense. Alcohol is a depressant. So guess what? If you're already prone to depression and you drink alcohol, you might get depressed. Uh -huh. so, you know, that's been a huge, you know, kind of getting out of that space, you know, and, and all those things. But I think the thing I would tell you today is I am so grateful. And I say it all the time. You know, I tattooed my children's names on my wrists as reminders that I wouldn't have them if I'd have died all the times I tried. And I wouldn't have the life I have today. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be in recovery. I wouldn't have these two cuties on my wall, little grandbabies. I wouldn't have my daughter, Caitlin. You know, I wouldn't have the experiences that I'm getting to have. You know, suicide robbed my dad of all of those. I know he's missing and wishing he could, you know, hold these little babies <laughs> and be a great grandpa and you know, my siblings who've had children, you know, they never got to meet my dad. I'm lucky that my kids did um, because I had them, you know, really early on. And um, they're the only ones that even kind of have a memory of, of who he was. And 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 that's hard, you know. So I, I'm grateful today for sure um, to be alive. And, and most attempt survivors, that's their experience too. You know, sometimes, yeah, we're mad. But then we realize we got another chance. And again, gracefully, right? Not there's no rhyme or reason. Why why do some die and some don't? You know, and and I've always heard it said, some have to die so others can live. And I know for me, my dad died so I could live. So for that, I owe him. I owe him my life today. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no apology needed. And I I feel the same way about my dad. Uh, my dad suffering through what he did and making the choice he made certainly helped put me on the path I'm on today. Um, and I don't know that I would have found this path otherwise. So definitely owe, owe the world to him when it comes to my sobriety and my ability to be sitting here, sp sitting here speaking with you today 
And something that I am curious about your perspective on is kind of the uh, chicken or the egg conversation that exists around addiction and suicidality. And in, in my thinking about it, I see it as the chicken and the egg both existing, maybe neither one coming before the other, but both supporting and feeding off of each other. And what I mean by that is that for me, I was using substances because I was in a dark place that I didn't know how to escape. I was so depressed dealing with my own, speaking of language, I learned that the term we're using for ideation, or at least in the medical world is suicidal intensity. I just Mm -hmm. learned that. So I was in a place of deep suicidal intensity that I didn't know how to escape and substances helped me escape it. But then also I was feeling suicidal and depressed because I was high and drunk all the time. I'm curious about your thoughts on that, this relationship that exists between addiction and suicidality. Yeah, I'm right with you. I think they're exactly the same. You know, in recovery, I work with so many people who say, oh, I have somebody who's suicidal. I'm like, it's the same thing as us being in the space. We don't like what's happening. We change it. We don't know how to change it. This is the option we're using. Again, suicide is really just a coping strategy. It's a way for people to get out of and away from the thing that is hurting them. Obviously not a healthy one, obviously not the one we want, but it's a coping strategy. Same way substance use is. It's a way for us to cope with the things that are hurtful and painful. And like I said, I I, I know there are some, but I do believe for most people, suicide has very little to do with dying, even though the de- you know definition of suicide is to kill oneself. It has everything to do with not knowing how to live with what is happening. Again, wanting to change it, needing to change it, but not having the tool. That's why we have to be able to talk about it. That's why in recovery, right, in addiction, we have to be able to tell somebody where we're at openly, honestly, so they can hear us. So we can start to, you know, problem solve and think of other options, other things I can do. Because again, in those moments, we don't see another choice. We don't see another option. You know, it doesn't feel like there is anything else. And so we get that tunnel vision where all we know is what we know. And we go to that thing that's worked before. You know, suicide also, if you think about it, is fight or flight. It's it's saying, again, get me away from right? The burning building, the the thing, and we all have those in our life. We're like, gosh, I just can't stand this. <laughs> so however I have to make this stop, that's what I do. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I think they are one and the same. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We've covered a lot of ground so far. Um, and I just want to take a second to pause and come up for air. I would like to shift gears a little bit. Really curious about your involvement with AFSP. It's an organization that I think very highly of and talk about quite a bit in in doing this work. So I'm curious about how that involvement started for you and what it's shifted into where it is today, uh, being being the coordinator for for the Utah area for AFSP. Well, well, let's start there. And then I do have some follow-up questions, but if that feels like a good place, let's start there. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, after we lost our dad to suicide, I I did what most survivors do. I start looking for answers, right? Answers, support. Why? What happened? Who else has this happened to? What do we do? And this is back in the day of AOL dial-up. So I just dated myself. (laughs) I, I got on my computer, right? And I searched. 
And what I came across was the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And back then it was very different. Obviously there were, I noticed it was a national org based out of New York, local chapters across the US, most of them back East, very few out, you know, West, definitely nothing in Utah. So I reached out and just said, hey, you know, what do I need to do to, to start this process? And the gal I talked to, uh, you know, her name was Mallory. She says, you know, well, we do these out of the darkness walks. Would you be interested in hosting one? I was like, oh, totally. I can do that. Um, at the time, I worked at Paul Mitchell and, and I was a teacher. So I had all these students who were willing to help me and they helped me host and organize our very first one. I think we had like two, you know, maybe 50 of us that walked and all raised a couple thousand dollars. It was really small. But then fast forward, you know, 2019, the year before the pandemic, we held our, our what, 14th walk, I think it was, and gosh, had almost 10,000 people. We were the second largest walk in the United States as far as attendees. The only person wow. that was Chicago. Um, we didn't raise the money they did, but we had the people. And, you know, this year will be our 17th. Um, you know, I'm hoping we start to see people come back in the numbers that we saw before the pandemic. Hasn't been there yet, but obviously we know this is still an issue. So anyway, we started the walks, you know, we started the process of, of bringing a chapter here. So as a volunteer, I was part of our chapter board and I did that for 16 years. We got to a place where our chapter had raised enough money that we could support having a staff person. And when they said, you know, that we could get a staff person, I said, well, then I'm going to apply. And and if anyone's going to run this, it's going to be me because <laughs> I started it, damn it. Uh, and anyway, so I got the job, you know, they hired me, thankfully. And again, by the grace, right? Like who hires a recovering addict? <laughs> And, you know, but again, AFSP knows me, you know, it's become a family. These are people who've shared the journey I've shared and we've walked it together. And so, yeah, I, I luckily get to participate in that. Um, AFSP has really important mission to, to save lives and bring hope to anybody affected by suicide. So we do that through our fundraising efforts to provide research and educate and support people who've had the experience. And then sometimes my least favorite, but most favorite, we advocate. You know, I cried in my meeting this morning in my recovery group because we're starting our legislative session and here we go again and bills target certain people and we have high rates of suicide amongst certain populations and I'm going to go sit and meet with legislators who don't see the things that I see and we do not agree on a lot of things, but I'm going to have conversations that matter because human life matters, right? And so, yeah, AFSP has definitely been a way for me to give back, to fill my cup, but also give to others. And again, be there for people in those, those moments. So I'm so grateful for the work that you've done and that you continue to do. And I'm, I'm wondering your take on, you know, being pretty close to it, what, what you see that we're missing, either in the world of suicide prevention or postvention, I think, you know, both are really in their infancy and there are some really fantastic resources out there, but I'm wondering what you think is missing from either one of those spaces and how do we help fill the gap? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, we have to continue the conversations that make it safe for people to come out and talk openly when they're in that place. Uh, there's still a very real fear that if I call the crisis line, you're going to come, you know, arrest me, incarcerate me, put me in an institution. And we have to stop all that nonsense. Like, again, yes, it may be necessary for some in that moment to get them through the dark place, but we have to make care available to people that feels safe, that feels like it is it is respectful. 
Um, you know, I, I, nothing makes me sadder than to see the the gaps we have in our, our communities. There's just one, not enough therapists. <laughs> we don't have enough mental health professionals for the need that's out there. So what that means is we as friends and family need to get educated and informed so that we can support people in those moments until they can get into the mental health professional or until we can get, you know, the care. But again, we would never tell somebody with a heart attack, hey, I'm sorry, but there's a six month waiting list, you know, we'll get to you when we can. Well, when my brain is trying to kill me and you tell me I can't get in to see somebody or you put me in an isolated room, neither of those two things are helpful. So we have to work together to find some some answers in the meantime, for sure. Mm, Well said, thank you. I want to drill deeper on the second part of that question, which yeah. is around postvention. Okay. It, we we made a post this week on Instagram related to kind of just suicide terminology. What is postvention? What does it mean? What resources are out there? And I think out of the two, prevention and postvention, postvention is certainly more in its infancy. Yeah. And I think there are some great uh, organizations out there. As far as I know, they're mostly local. Mm-hmm. What what I would love to see is this evolve to the point where either AFSP or another leading organization has response units they can deploy when a suicide does occur. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there are local groups that do this. It just doesn't quite have the reach yet. But I think about how impactful that would have been in the yeah. loss of my dad if we had friendly faces there to help us navigate this brand new world that we lived in. Maybe we could have done it with a little more grace and and, and purpose, but I'm curious about your thoughts on that space of postvention and maybe where it is now and where you see it heading. Yeah. You know, how we respond to a suicide. Oh my gosh, that's prevention right there. We know that us as lost survivors have now an increased risk of thoughts and feelings for suicide. One, because of the intense grief that comes with this kind of loss. You know, suicide loss is the only loss that those of us left behind attach personal accountability, responsibility where there is none. (laughs) Okay. Mm But yeah. we do, and we we guilt, shame, blame, you know, look for all the things, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Again, the person that is contemplating suicide has to want to help themselves. Again, this is where it comes back mm. to addiction. If I don't want help, you can't make me get it. And I have to want to engage in the fight for my life. But we also have to make it a space where people want to do that. And so the postvention piece that's so vital is, again, providing that immediate support. You know, 20 years ago, we were ignored like we had the plague. And again, not because people didn't care. They didn't know what to say. So, yes, that's why I love the program we have, Healing Conversations. People can connect to somebody who shares their experience. You and I connect because we both lost a dad. But I can't connect to somebody who's lost a sibling in the same way or a spouse or, a you know, a child because that's not been my journey. Well, yes, our stories are different. Different, you know, we get it because it was a parent. So we, I love that AFSP has that. I love the teams that go out, these lost teams. Because again, think of our first responders that have to show up on those scenes, our medical examiners that have to show up on those scenes. We just had a murder suicide in our state. A dad took his family's life, eight of them, eight mm-hmm. of them, and then his own. And and the the toll that that takes on the people who respond to that, like again, trauma, 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 trauma. We have to find ways to better support. So yeah, states are starting to look at this. We're lucky in our state in Utah. We have a, a 
or a position in our medical examiner's office that's dedicated to suicide. So they do immediate outreach, again, immediate connection to friends and family, um, you know, to provide support. We hear about them, so we provide resources as we can. But you're right, it's that that immediate interaction, that one-on-one -on -one that says, hey, you're not alone. I can walk you through this. Again, it's not going to be easy, but you're not by yourself. And that's prevention at its finest because it gets people the help and support they need. So we don't see, you know, some of those folks go on to, to attempt or struggle because they do feel that that loss so deeply. And I, I love that idea that postvention is prevention. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree and see it that way. And Healing Conversations has come up probably five times on this show so far. So I will put a link for that in the show notes. Um, it's a program that I used within the first six months of losing my dad. Um, I got in touch with AFSP and they put me in touch with a gentleman who also lost his father to suicide. And now it feels so cool to be able to take that full circle and be a lost survivor who is having conversations with folks who have just lost someone. So fantastic program, uh, incredibly valuable. One of the best resources that I know of. Um, and I think part of what is shifting and helping us take postvention more seriously is accepting the fact that we fundamentally just can't prevent every suicide. As much as we want to, as fantastic as that would be, I don't think that's an achievable target. I think we need to continue to focus on how do we reduce that happening to the absolute minimum. But then there also needs to be this other branch that's going out of what do we do when it does happen? Because it is going to happen. And and the other thing too, and and I, I again, I don't necessarily feel this way, but I understand that people do. Um, for a lot of lost survivors, suicide prevention. When you hear that, you're like, well, thanks, thanks for making me feel like shit that I didn't know what to do to save my loved one. Here's the challenge, right? Most of us didn't know because we didn't talk about this. We never learned the warning signs of suicide the way we did heart attack and stroke. And so you're right. It is not 100% preventable. And when people say that, ooh, I want to smack them because I'm like, don't do that to a survivor. It's not. Can it be? Yes. Always? No. Yeah. Because even with everything being done right, people still die. Same with cancer, same with heart attacks. And look how much we know about those health issues. We're starting to barely get onto the tip of understanding suicide and we still have more to go. So I agree with you there and we do need to be careful. And then on the same token, right, we have to be careful how we respond publicly. We've seen this in the media. When we see these high profile suicides and people talk about method and, you know, they share these graphic details, that does put people at risk who are already at risk. Again, not for somebody who's never thought about it. So let's not perpetuate the myth that we can't talk about it because then people do it. No, they're going to do it if they're in crisis. So let's instead promote hope, healing, resiliency. Where do I go get help? Instead of these sensational stories that tell how. And, you know, we saw it after Robin Williams. We, we saw it again after Twitch. You know, I mean, we have to be careful as the media and as people. You know, I never reshare those stories on my social media. I don't. People don't need to be continually exposed to something that traumatic. So that's something we can each do. You know, when we do share our stories, share them safely. You know, we don't have to talk about the, the graphic, you know, this, 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 this. And sometimes that's hard. And think about new survivors. We didn't know that. So of course, when I first lost my dad, I'm telling everybody all the stuff that I didn't need to be sharing, but I didn't know. So again, cut ourselves some slack, but you know, there's so many opportunities to get educated 
that we want to encourage people to get that information sooner so that we can, again, help to support that that experience. Yeah, totally agree. And, and I look at my relationship with suicide a lot like I do with my relationship with recovery. There is no right way or graceful way to do this thing. And I am constantly making mistakes. I'm saying the wrong thing. I'm sharing too much. I'm keeping too much bottled up. But as long as I'm like getting 1% or a fraction of a percent better as I'm moving forward, I'm heading the right direction. And there's something I wanted to pick your brain about. I think there are folks who listen to this show who are survivors of loss. I think there are other folks who are dealing with their own suicidal intensity or like yourself who have a lived experience. But then I've also heard from some folks who have no real direct tie to suicide. They maybe have someone close to them in their lives who is a loss survivor. I just spoke with a friend last night. Um, his partner is a survivor of multiple losses. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this show and some of the work that I've been trying to do. And he asked me, he's like, how, how do I show up for her? What do I say? And I was kind of perplexed at first. I'm like, man, shit, I don't really know. And then I thought about what, what do I need? Yeah. Um, and what, what is it that makes my partner such a safe person to go to? And what I shared with him was, the amount of power that comes with saying, you know, I don't really know exactly what to say or what you need, but how can I help you? Um, and opening that door is so powerful because I think often we don't even really know what we need as lost survivors. So being given an opportunity to think about it and share it with a safe person and make it a collaborative effort is I think such a powerful thing. I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on what you could do to support someone who either is a loss survivor or a survivor of lived experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll email you to a couple of really great resources that you could share, but we call it at AFSP just having a real combo. And, and so again, like you mentioned, it's that I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but I want to be here. I want to show up for you. So help me understand what does that look like? What do you need? And if you don't know right now, that's okay. I'm going to check back in and, and continue that little follow-up. Um, being, I, I love the phrase, sit in the dark with somebody until they can look on the bright side. We don't have to say anything, just being present, right? Letting them say their loved one's name. I always ask people, and I want to know yours, right? I want to know your dad's name. I want to know something that you loved about your dad and a fun memory you had and 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 talk to me about him. I I I, I remember people's angel versaries because I want them to, to remember mine. I love when people ask me about my dad or tell me a story instead of going, oh, I don't want to bring it up. No, we want to say their name. We want to talk about them. So make that a safe space. If somebody wants to talk about why they're thinking of suicide, just hear it. Again, you don't have to fix it. You don't have to have the, the answer. Just shut up and listen. <laughs> Let them just get it out and, and then validate, right? And say, man, thank you. You know, thank you for telling me. Thank you for being vulnerable and being honest. Hold space. That's the term you've used a lot today. And that's so important. We don't have to have the magic key and the magic word. We just got to be 
there, be present. Um, those are the things I try to do and, and what helps me when I need those things. Um, but like I said, AFSP created some really cool um, how to have a real convo with somebody who's thinking about it, somebody who's attempted, somebody who's lost somebody. So I'll provide those to you and you can share those with, with folks as well. They just give great tools. That's awesome. I appreciate that. And we'll we'll link those as well. I, I love the way you put it. And I think it helps alleviate some of the pressure. Um that I know I've felt is like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I want to make sure I say the right thing. I, I don't think either one of those things exist. Mm -hmm. And I think the only important thing is that we enable someone to share their experience and really listen, like truly listen, not think about what you're going to say next or how you're going to respond, but hear and feel their experience is just that is the most powerful for me. And that's what I've gotten out of doing this show so far. And I, I feel pretty good about the ground we covered today. Yeah. There, There is one place I'd like to go before I give you a chance to maybe share anything we didn't touch on. And you, you kind of read my mind a little bit. You talked about the importance of honoring those that we've lost. And I'd like to maybe have a little bit of like a dad off. <laughs> Yeah, And if that feels comfortable yes. and my dad, his name was Rob as well. He was Rob senior. Um, and, uh, September 6th, 2017 is the day that my dad took his life. Um, and he is so much more than a man who struggled with substances and took his life. Um, some of my favorite things about my dad that I try to embody in my life today the way my dad used humor it, more effectively than I think anyone I've ever known. I think in my own life, I've fallen into the trap of using humor as a weapon, you know, to like pick on somebody or to like get a response that I'm looking for. My dad just so seamlessly used it as a way to bring people together and make people laugh. Um, and that's something I strive to find in my life. And I'm so grateful that I had like a teacher in that way uh, because Without humor, I don't know where I'd be in the recovery from losing my dad. My sister and I have the darkest sense of humor around losing our dad. Like every time Father's Day rolls around, we're like, hey, happy father. Oh, never mind. <laughs> or like, you know, uh, uh, if I'm talking to a friend and he's complaining about, you know, something going on with his dad, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when I had a dad. Thanks, man. You know, just it's, it's been so important for me to like try to approach this thing with a sense of humor. And also the the connection that my dad, I know my dad felt to music is something that I feel as well. And it's not something he talked about or I think even knew how to talk about. My dad was not very in touch with his emotions and didn't really know how to communicate his experience. He didn't have the language for it, but you could see that like when his favorite song would come on or we would be at a concert together, he would be taken to a place that I know I can be taken to as well. And so it's like, I'm so grateful to have that in common with him. And it's something that I try to keep, keep alive in my life. That guitar that I yeah. have here in the background yeah. is partly to look cool. I want people to know that I play the guitar, <laughs> but my dad bought that guitar for me oh, and he bought it for me for Christmas in probably 2012. Uh, and he did so much research to find this particular guitar. And it's like, 
my favorite thing. If my mm-hmm. house was on fire and I had to That's save one thing, I would probably open the door maybe so the dog could run out because I do love him, but that's sure. what I'm I'm grabbing. So that is what comes to mind about my dad uh, and who he was when he was here, not just who he was in leaving this earth. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear your dad's name and what you would want folks listening to this to remember about your dad. Seriously, the synchronicities, man. Um, so my dad is Terry and I'm named after him, but I'm Taryn. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And and say my dad was um my dad was kind. My dad was giving. My dad would give you the shirt off his back. Um, even when he had nothing. Mm. Uh, we heard so many beautiful stories of things that I, I I didn't know he did, but it didn't surprise me. And then definitely my dad's love of music. Oh my gosh, you talk about music. My father and I same. he didn't have language, but we'd cruise in his car. He'd drive a hundred miles an hour with his knees with a double gulp of Diet Coke. (laughs) Not safe, but he would do it. And then just crank favorite songs, you know, Bee Gees. Oh my gosh. When the Bee Gees to love somebody comes on, that is my dad. And I just, just jam. And, um, you know, the last song we ever listened to together in my car was taking my kids up to look at the leaves. We love to be outside. And uh, it was Silver Springs by Fleetwood Mac. And we just sang our guts out. And then I'll never forget, you know, an album my dad listened to. And again, not a, not ironically at all, a lot before he died was Metallica's Black Album. And the song that he would play over and over, two of them, uh, Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters. And when I listen to those, you know, it gives me again, that's where he, that's where he was at that time. That's how he felt. And then my favorite memory that I, I tell people all the time, in fact, I have this playlist on Spotify that when I go to the cemetery, I actually spend a lot of time there. My dad didn't have anything when he left the earth, so there's no place. So I do like to go there because that's just at least where I feel like I can be near. And plus, he's buried right below our gorgeous mountain. And that was our mountain. We always had it in our backyard. But uh, Melissa Etheridge, I'm the only one. There was a Sunday afternoon that we spent dancing to that song and and. <laughs> It comes on without fail when I go visit him. So that's his little check-ins. That's the way he checks in with me. And I golf today. My dad and I used to golf together and I golf today. And every time I golf, dragonflies show up and uh, I have one tattooed on my arm, but dragonflies are also, I believe, our loved one's way of checking in. And that's how he shows up in my life is when I'm out on the golf course. I see dragonflies fly right around me and hover as I'm teeing off or <laughs> hitting a putt. So golf. Wow. Yeah, for me, it's... Where is it? The black oh, yes. butter, the black butterfly Love it. Yeah. has a, has a way of showing up when I'm thinking about my dad. And at first I wrote it off as like something that was silly. I was like, yeah, the world is full of butterflies. And then without fail, it would show up on his anniversary. It would show up when I was thinking about him, talking about him. I'm like, okay, dude, I get it. I see I get you. It. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Uh, For the holidays, we just drove up from Asheville, North Carolina, where I live now, uh, to New Jersey, where my family is. Mm -hmm. It's about an 11 hour drive. And in the car, uh, The Who came on. And my dad loved The Who. He loved Yes, Gentle Giant. You know, he was a big, like, prog rock kind of guy. And my dad was good at most things that he did. He was a horrific singer, very, (laughs) very bad at singing. And I could hear him like word for word singing along with the who. And it was just so cool to like to feel that and have it not make me sad. 
it made yeah. me feel so connected to him. He might as well have been like in the back seat singing along. Um, and you touched on it a little bit, but I'm wondering if, you know, there's obviously this connection between you and your dad, me and my dad and music. And I'm wondering if there's a song above all that like when it comes on or when you hear it just takes you to that place. Journey. Journey? What song? <laughs> Journey, Don't Stop Believing. <laughs> mm. What does that bring up for you? That was my dad's jam too. And in fact, it's funny, I walk in all the overnight walks that AFSP does. And when we went to Philadelphia and did theirs, um, I karaoke'd it. <laughs> oh, man. I hope that's on video somewhere. I, I jammed it. Is. I jammed <laughs> it up. I'll find it and send it to you. Oh my gosh! But yeah, that's that's a song that the minute it comes on, I'm like, that's my dad. Don't stop believing. That's so cool. What's yours? It's interesting, you know, because it's not a song that my dad really liked or that we listened to together, but it's a song that I feel like was written for me to mm. grieve my dad, and it's "Simple Man" by Leonard Skinner. Mm. Ugh. It just rips through me every time it comes on. I have to stop what I'm doing. I need to intently listen to it and just be present with it because it always takes me on a ride. <laughs> That's a good one. It's interesting you say that one last thing because, you know, when I left my dad's that day, Freebird. And if you listen to the lyrics of Freebird. Oh, yeah. That came out as I left. And I, and I knew. I knew he was okay. I knew it was okay. So That is... That is powerful. I got chills. So do I. No, I really, I have goosebumps in this moment. <laughs> My legs are like. <laughs> wow. Aww. You're awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I just, that was, I haven't smiled and thought about my dad like I just did. I appreciate you giving me that space and I loved hearing about yours. No, thank you for bringing it up and, and allowing awesome. that to happen. It, it feels good. It feels good. Something I said recently is that like you know so often we get wrapped up in what happened mm -hmm. which is suicide because yeah. it is a humongous thing and it's something that we will never fully understand and it's something that can make us feel the entire spectrum of emotions sometimes at the same time but what I have to pause and remember is that there was like an entire person behind that choice and that's the person that I choose to try to remember today ditto hmm well, I do want to be mindful of your time. And I also do want to give you an opportunity to plug anything that maybe you have going on or say anything that's on your mind or touch on anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about. You know, I'll say what I say every time I end anything. And that's if right now you are thinking that you can't do it one more minute, that you don't want to do it one more minute. Just tell someone. You know, let somebody be there with you. I always say this too, and this might sound terrible, Rob, but I would have sat with him and I would have let him go. But at least he wouldn't have gone alone. Just tell somebody. You don't have to do this by yourself. You know, you don't. We weren't meant to. We weren't meant to do life alone. So let somebody in. You know, we might not be able to solve it or fix it, but we can be here with you. So, so give somebody that chance, give us the chance because I didn't get that chance and I wish I would have had that chance. So that's all. That is beautifully said. And I appreciate you saying that and definitely, definitely echo that sentiment. You are a rock star. I appreciate so much the work that you're doing and 
just really admire a lot about your journey and above above it all like I'm so glad that you're here to share it with me me too me too and thank you and thank you for what you're doing man thank you Betsy thank you Betsy thank you Betsy <laughs> yeah Betsy she has connected me with so many incredible people I, yeah. I owe her the world and I, I know this is the start of us connecting yeah. more frequently and in different ways. And, I, and I'm really grateful and looking forward to that. Me too. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Taryn. Appreciate you joining me today. And I will speak with you soon. All right. Sounds good. Have a great one. You too. Bye now.